Our guest on this episode is John Fell Ryan, a writer, researcher, editor, musician, producer, and recording artist who broke ground on a new avenue of scholarship regarding Kubrick's film The Shining with something he calls radical projection. Two copies of the film are projected, one moving forward and the other backwards. And when the images are superimposed on each other, it elucidates previously hidden subtexts within the film. You can read more about John's stellar work at johnfellryan.com and kdk12.tumblr.com. What I want to start out with is just to find out from you where your consciousness of Kubrick began and, and what drew you to him. Well, I, I, you know, I saw 2001 at an early age, you know, in the theater. Went with my parents. So I was, you know, conscious of him, you know, my entire life, you know, conscious life. So, but maybe he kind of caught my attention kind of by accident a few years ago. And uh, I sort of discovered the whole world of, you know, shining and Kubrick analysis and, like, mm. you know, the synchromistics and all this of online uh, symbol symbol enthusiasts <laughs> and just kind of got you know was working as a researcher and got you know would got kind of lost in researching different angles on the film yeah and it's you know he was an kind of an ambiguous well not kind of he was an ambiguous filmmaker and a lot of his movies can be read various ways but none more so i think than the shining uh, I found, and what's odd about it is that it's also a film that can be viewed just as a straight kind of horror film for most people. Oh, sure. I mean, it's, it has all the trappings of the genre, and and I use the word trapping specifically because they become, you know, traps for the for the characters in the film. Yeah. Who aren't really horror types? I would say. I would say that they are. You know, on one level, ordinary people, and on the second level, actors. Mm -hmm. You know, consciously acting in a film. So there's Kubrick has has a very subtle kind of you know meta narrative going in all his films that you know where the characters are semi-conscious that they're in films. Do you think that he was as concerned with? character so much as kind of filtering the ideas that obsessed him through those characters? Oh, definitely both. Like I think there's there's equal amounts of, of, of realism and uh let's say metaphor in uh, mm. in his character. I mean to varying degrees. I mean depends on, on how like how large the character is to the to the uh film, but like uh, think about like all those great small scenes that the little bit bit characters have. You know mm -hmm. how much is put into those scenes. It's like the mundane, the mundane uh, details in Kubrick films are often the most interesting. Cause that's where he puts all the all the sort of that's where he puts his humor and these great performances. I mean, yeah, I think he has a real love for characters. Well, what, what, I mean, why why else spend so much time filming them? 
That that's absolutely true. I mean, he he seemed to be looking for moments that surprised him, but but listening to a lot of the people I've just, I've talked about this film with for the series from you know, Jeffrey Cox who who makes the Holocaust metaphor to Bill Blakemore that makes the the Indian genocide metaphor mm-hmm. to the moon landing metaphor from another guy. I mean, they're all <laughs> over the map. Uh, it's, well, they're all valid because they're all points of view. Yeah, and that's what he's really orchestrating his points of view. So you don't think all of these theories about The Shining are, are, are much ado about nothing? Um, no, because I, I don't think that just because a theory isn't, you know, capital T true, doesn't mean that it's not valid. I mean, mm-hmm. these are all these are all stories. You know, ghost. I like to call them you know, campfire stories or ghost stories. You know, playground stories, stories that you know spring out of of like a complex narrative, like The Shining. Yeah. So, so in you, that way, like you know, it's you know, le- it's their legends, and mm-hmm. you know, they make it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it is, and it is a never-ending well. I mean, you, you could get, <laughs> it's like getting lost in the rabbit hole. It's it's uh, endless. Uh, but knowing Kubrick's work, uh, where do you think The Shining fits in in terms of the kinds of themes that obsessed him? Where it fits in? Yeah, how do you think it's a continuation of the kinds of themes and, that he liked to explore? Well, it's less of a continuation than it is like, you know, a, a Chinese box where the themes get locked in. You know, it's it's his, like his most, well, I would say it's his most dramatic film. Mm-hmm. I mean, 2001 is all about continuum emotion and like you know, from the past and future and beyond. But the the shining is more vertical. It's like you go up the mountain, you come down the mountain. <laughs> uh-huh. Well and and he he has this is what interests me about what you produced, I think you called it radical projection. Uh, oh the uh the shining forwards and backwards. That's the first Yes, that's the first I heard of of your analysis of The Shining, uh, a listener wrote in and described one of the screenings he attended. But there's always kind of, <clears throat> in some of Kubrick's films, I'm thinking Clockwork Orange, there there are moments that that mirror one another from the beginning of the film to the end. Uh, oh, and, certain. and certainly in The Shining, I mean, mirrors... I mean, the, central, the central metaphor of Shining. <laughs> right. Right. So could you ex- explain that a-, a little bit more to me, the- that central metaphor? The central metaphor of the mirror? Well, there, there's there's all forms of mirroring. There's There are things that are reversed, you know, things, are things that are repeated. There are things that are doubled. Mm. You know, there are things that, re- like, remind you of other things. And it's it's such a it's a geometrical film. So I mean the meta the, the mirror become I like to use the, the metaphor of like algebra where the mirror is the equal sign. It's the uh I don't know, it's a it's a switch. He use he uses it so much in that film. I mean it's in mm-hmm. every especially if you if you go through and you just follow follow one person or one object, 
or one room even and see you can see then uh all these repetitions reversals uh mirrorings doublings mm-hmm. and it, it, i think it's tied, tied into the central story of a family of generations of uh of children and parents uh great uh grandparents great grandparents hmm. kind of well there is there is kind of because he as he's mentioned as he's always been the caretaker there yeah. uh i mean well that's the just kind what of, one person tells him <laughs> yeah i mean i i have a theory that he's not the caretaker do you think he's just one of the one of the hands the hired hands there i mean do you, no because that's not that's he does not he's not looking for a job i mean he's amazing in his interview he he tells he says like my main thing is i i i don't want i'd rather write all day uh-huh. <laughs> and then they seem they oblige him they're like well your wife can do all your work for you uh and, and she yeah she does yeah yeah he's yeah. he's kind I mean, of in he's, effect he's he's looking Go for ahead. a good time he's i think he's uh, in the final image of him in the uh July 4th ball photograph i think he's he's a band leader an entertainer like a master of ceremonies mm. like i really think that he's he's trying to get to hollywood moon from vermont to colorado but it, he's trying to get to california <laughs> you know there are palm trees in that in that in that yeah. final photograph so and I don't think he's a caretaker. He's a he's an entertainer, and in the way that he it will entertain this role of the caretaker, you know, as an actor, he's like, okay. Hmm. I mean, he messes it up at first, and then they they press it to him, and uh, you know, he obliges and in in his murdering, like starts quoting pop culture all the time. Yes. So it to him it's it's an act. It's an axe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the great thing about Kubrick is he's so punny, you know, he uses all these uh visual puns and like I mean just well, just casting casting people who have the same name as their characters. Classic. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But but in terms of that last shot, because you mentioned the July Fourth ball, uh, I mean, do you have any theories on what he's holding in his thumb? Would, mm, my theory is that, that it's a request. That uh, you know, he's he's the band leader, so he tells the band what to what to play, and mm. but he takes requests from the house. I've seen I've seen a. Other old photographs where there are similar slips of paper are like on the tables, and I think I think mm. it's it's you know back in the old days people used to request songs. Hmm. You know what 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 else kind of drew? You, if you could explain kind of some of the some of the 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 mirror concepts or or ideas or images when you ran it simultaneously backwards and forwards for our audience, that would be great. Oh sure, let me. Uh, I'll just uh, throw back to my notes. And maybe do a greatest hits reel here for you. <laughs> the first image and the last image combined. The last image is of the 
the uh, inscription Overlook Hotel, July 4th Ball, 1921. And the first image is of the mirrored lake. And in the superimposition, it becomes like a postcard invitation. And uh, like an invi invitation to a ball at a, a picturesque uh, location. And uh, then the road, the road uh, spirals through Jack's head. And so we understand that in the superimposition, we understand that this is a journey into Jack's mind. And there's an amazing part where the Jack Nicholson's name, the car he's driving, and the final photograph all uh, meet up at one point in the center of the frame. Letting you know that this is his story. <laughs> Other great things like like the interview takes place while he's having his you know axe murdering fit, and his family is leaving in the snow cat while he's arriving at the interview while he's you know running through the snow looking to eat his son, his son is eating a sandwich in the earlier part of the film, yeah. And when Danny is discussing with Tony his trepidation about going to the hotel, we see the infamous dogman shot underlying that Danny's fear is is uh fear is of a you know sexual nature in the hotel. And this is underlined that Danny's visions um, and the forwards version are overlapped with Wendy, with images of Wendy, so that he his fear is also you know strongly connected to his mother. Yeah. Mm. Superimposition. It's a great shot where he's lying in bed being examined by the doctor, and superimposed over his over his uh, head is his screaming face. <laughs> wow. You know, and she's asking these questions, and he's sort of like, no, it's okay, not really. And but through that whole scene, he's screaming. Like when when uh, Jack meets the manager and his assistant in the lobby in the first day of work, um, mm -hmm. murder is written over over them meeting for the uh, for the first time, like as if that, that that's their ulterior motive in the reversal. And as uh, they, they tour the Colorado Colorado Lounge, as they tour the Colorado Lounge, uh, and the manager is espousing sort of the elitist nature of the hotel, um, Danny is, all, is busy writing red rum on the wall. So he, it's as, as if as if he uh, he is explicit, making explicit what's implicit in in. Uh, the manager's coded uh, corporate uh, boilerplate speech. Mm -hmm. Also, Danny is when Danny is holding the knife, he's throwing darts, and they're facing opposite directions. 
when Danny is holding, when Wendy's holding the knife, is, no, is that what Danny, you said? When Danny's, he's holding the knife and a, and a tube of lipstick, chanting Red Rum. Yes, yes. In the apartment room. And then in the uh, pre in the uh, earlier part of the film, he's throwing darts in the game room. So he's... And he's facing opposite directions to those who compose over himself. So it's like he's a, he's a warrior in all directions. Mm. And that's that's kind of Danny's Danny sort of functions as a spirit warrior throughout the film. You know, he has vehicles and weapons and is ultimately the mur- uh the killer of the main characters. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah, I'm fascinated by the by these observations. I don't yeah. I don't know. I mean, it, I mean it was just a it was just a you know an accidental idea, <laughs> you know, made possible by Final Cut and you know, yeah. Where do they meet? Where do the two halves meet? Two halves meet the exact center of the film, and I, I count the film as just the image, not the. I don't count the the corporate leader or the. Or the uh, end credits, just right. the film image, and that way the exact middle is is the scene where Halloran is lying in bed watching television, and that's he's sort of Halloran is sort of the uh, he's the sacrificial lamb of the film, right? He, he's called up to called up to the mountain. You know, by Danny, but not, not for any real purpose. I mean, Danny doesn't. The only real reason why he's taken there is so he can be killed. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he he's uh, <laughs> if he's a, if if Danny like let him know that there was something going on, and he just walks in there and like, you know, kind of dumbfounded. You know, no no way of defending himself. Right. And in the book, he saves the day. Oh, really? I yeah. tell you that you haven't read the book. <laughs> yeah, but but the the film, uh, I mean, the film has a, a definite streak of racism in it, themes of of genocide. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, in that respect, it makes sense that he altered the book in in that way, and and like you said, made Halloran the. The sacrificial lamb in the piece. I mean, there, there's a couple of things that interest me about the observations that you just made. There is well, not. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. He. I mean, Halloran is judged by Danny. That interview that they have in the in the beginning, like Danny does not trust Halloran. Like, why would Halloran, if they are like psychic brothers, if they if Halloran recognizes that Danny is like you know a star child or whatever. Uh-huh. Like why would why would he leave him up there when he knows that the hotel is is, is up to no good? So Danny, I mean Danny is staring at him with slit eyes the whole time and like sizing him up. So that's that's why that's why he's he's killed. Danny brings him up there just to just to uh, distract his father for a second. <laughs> <laughs> And also to also to to also to make it honorable to kill his father. Like now his father is a murderer, so it's okay to kill him. Mm. 
Because I, I have a, also have a theory that Danny opens the door when he's locked in the um, locked when in the storage the... room. Yeah. yeah, and there's this like, well, that's the one supernatural thing that happens. But you know, Danny is unaccounted for. He could be anywhere. Huh. I and hadn't heard that before. That's fact. and in the in the superimposition, Danny is strongly associated with with Grady. Every time Grady's on screen, Danny's on screen, and you know, in superimposed. So it's almost like Grady is is Danny is like psychic double agent, <laughs> you know, convincing his father to uh, become a murderer, you know, which would provide Danny with an honorable way of uh, um, killing his father. Do you think? I mean, it's implied, uh, but it's not explicitly so. Uh, that there's sexual abuse present. Oh, and that that's made very apparent in the uh, in the superimposition. In superimposition, in the uh, red bathroom scene, when Grady is, you know, wiping wiping the advocate off uh, Jack's chest, and Jack is making those ridiculous O faces. Uh, we see. You know, we see the the scene where Danny is sitting on his father's lap in the bedroom, hmm. which people tend to tend to. I've noticed a lot a lot of analysis 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 analysts. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to go uh, Norman Bates on you there for a second, but uh, that's all right. <laughs> I've uh, I've read several uh, analyses that suggest that there is a there is a sexual uh, a scene of uh, episode of sexual abuse that happens after that scene in the bedroom. Hmm. I mean, it's it's underlined with all the bear imagery. I mean, bears are the big sacrifice symbol, and they, you know, given to boys, and uh, that's the reason why Danny would kill his father. But he can't, you know, he can't. He that's uh, it's too taboo to to speak of or to like point fingers at. So. An alternative mo- motive needs to be created, so that Danny can, you know, maintain his honor as a warrior. Well, tell me what your thoughts are on that marriage. I mean, what is it? Uh, you know, his last film was obviously a portrait of a marriage. Yeah. Uh, how, how does that kind of uh, a mar- a contrast? Convenience. Yeah. How does that contrast with The Shining's portrait? Well, I don't think there's was a marriage of convenience. I mean, I think, I mean, if Jack's an artist, he, you know, would see, as artists may do, see the, I mean, extreme beauty of uh, Shelley Duvall. I mean, the more I look at that movie, the more beautiful she becomes. And she she has a subtle intelligence. You notice that she's the one who's reading all the time. Like those are probably her books, uh-huh. not Jack's books. Maybe Jack is. Is uh, putting on airs about being a writer, trying to, you know, please his maybe quietly intellectual wife, even though in the film she appears, you know, homely and uh, only really concerned about cooking and cleaning. But there's, you know, in, in all Kubrick's films, there there are narratives that aren't seen. But it, but in other ways, it's a very ordinary marriage. It's you know like when you get married and have kids, 
you know, there are stresses all over the place. You know. Well, what strikes me is work at home. <laughs> yeah, and he's unemployed. He's like he's he's trying to, you know, he's he's trying to to uh, provide for his family like the best he can, even though he's obviously has serious problems with the world. He seems to be very ineffectual. I mean, his um, he never he never works. Uh, he's never shown working at the job that he was given. Shelley Duvall is. He's he's not. He's writing the same phrase over and over again. He's yeah, not he's successful. He's a teacher in, who ob- who doesn't seem to be concerned about children at all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, in, in a way, Jack is you know he's a, he's a jack ox. He's there's a you know he's a compulsive masturbator, and complete. He's appropriately you know. named. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, like I've I've found in studying the uh, the bedroom mirror in their apartment at the Overlook, like I think tells the tale that that uh, you know Jack is just. You know, is masturbating. Hmm. <laughs> oh, you can you can look at it. It's it's maybe a little far fetched, but <laughs> <laughs> the difference between their apartment in Boulder and the apartment at the Overlook is that at the Overlook, it's actually a step down from their temporary apartment, yeah. in that Danny. Well, it's it's smaller, but also that Danny has to walk through his parents' bedroom to get to the bathroom. He only has a sink in his room. And I think that's done very much on purpose so that it creates a feeling that at any moment he could walk in on his parents or walk in on Jack with his copy of Playgirl, whatever he's up to. Crazy old man. (laughs) (laughs) Another moment that just passes people by that... uh... Yeah, just but it's done uh, so specifically. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like Kubrick seems, seems to have spent like so much time just on like the postcards on the on the uh, on the refrigerator. I mean, he moves lamps around. He moves. He switches curtains from one end to the other. <laughs> and the architecture of the Overlook changes, doesn't it? Well. There's a difference between between the uh, exterior shots, some of the exterior shots, which are the shots of the Timberline Lodge on uh, Mount Hood, Oregon, and the which is a, the other uh, the main series where you see actors is a you know a set a set on a studio in England, mm-hmm. and it's a composite of the. Uh, Timberlines, like they took the two sides of the timberline and just kind of like shoved them on top of each other and like changed, like removed this hexagon and, you know, there's all these sort of differences that didn't need to happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, well, you know, the the sets of the interior sets, well, they're the maze, uh, like the doorway to the maze switches sides um, yes. after the after the starts snowing. And like, there's one shot where, like, when Shelley goes to look at the uh, at the uh, 
snowcat in the garage. You can see in the scene in the garage, you can see out the door. If you look carefully, you can see that the uh, the doorway is switched to the maze because it's off in the distance. <laughs> yeah, he's, and I've he's heard a master I've... of putting putting details in in the last frame of like a sequence. You know to you know like oh yeah, to move this like three story tree. Moved it out of the frame for no reason. <laughs> Just moved it over a few few uh, few hundred feet. Which makes some people say that he's one of the worst directors of continuity, and others say that no, there's there's a reason behind these. Uh, it's totally on, it's totally on purpose because I mean, Aquaman's razor. There's no reason why he why would he move a giant thing around? Right. Right. You know, and it's not just like you know for aesthetics. I mean, the aesthetics, it's you know, are pointing to create a subliminal feeling that the interiors are larger than the exteriors. And he does it, He does this in uh, Eyes Wide Shut as well. Yes. Like this. The costume store that, like, you know, goes into, you know, like, goes on well beyond its, you know, exterior dimensions. And also, like, changes place and, you know, the... It, Things inside of it rearrange themselves overnight. And someone said to me that the, everything that he does when he goes off at night, outside of going to the mansion, takes place in the same block. That you can actually yeah. see, yeah, you can see the name of the jazz club reflected in the costume shop window. Oh yeah. Well, there's it's more than that. It's it's uh like they'll it's the same. It's just like eight eight shaped block, and they'll like they'll change the awnings, they'll change the like facades of buildings, or they'll just change a little bit of it. I mean, it's <laughs> he's basically going in circles for a few days, but yeah, yeah, you know, and it's all, but it's you know, it's to the to show that you know our perception of the world is completely controlled by our you know interior mind. You know, he's obsessing over this one element and it becomes, you know, like that mirror again. It becomes repeated, doubled, reversed, you know, transformed. Mm. You know, that your emotions control uh, control your point of view and therefore control the world. Yeah. Before I let you go, if I can get a sense from you and you've touched upon it tonight, I'm sure, but um, the identity of the hotel, how much do you read as supernatural against how much you read as psychological? Or can it be psychological? Yeah, I mean, I don't think think it's a good idea to try and nail it down as one or the other. I mean, I think that the idea of the supernatural, the idea of, you know, a ghostly presence or people from another time or aliens or I mean whatever you can think of are all metaphors for for uh different levels of consciousness. Mhm. And that it's important that this take this narr- the narrative takes place on top of a mountain. You know, it's where the where the land meets the sky and you know, concepts of verticality bringing the corresponding concepts of higher consciousness. And Kubrick, you know, as a uh, capital G genius, is encoding uh, 
encoding methods to raise your intelligence in his films. Like that's that's kind of the essence of of like his kind of magic. Yeah. You know, he's trying to show you a way where you can see things from a bird's eye view just using by doing a dance around uh say, you know, a human point of view. Well, I know he had serious. He himself did not believe in the supernatural, and it's telling that any time an apparition appears to him, that it's always in front of a mirror, right? Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. There's, there's a, like it's not a not a mirror, at least a reflective surface. And there's that scene when he enters the gold room where he passes a series of four mirrors, and each time he does, there's this physical reaction. Right. Well, he can't. Jack, you know, again, it's a it's a visual pun. He can't stand the look at himself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he looks into the bedroom mirror like, like he sticks his first time he sees that bedroom mirror, he sticks his tongue out at it. Like he does not. <laughs> yeah. He does true. not like the reflect. He does not like what he sees. <laughs> and there's other there's other cool things like. How uh, room two thirty seven doesn't have any toilet paper. <laughs> there are no towels. There are no tissues. There's no soap. <laughs> Nothing to make you clean in it. Nope. Yeah. You're just getting dirty in there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's you know, it's just you know, Jack's full of shit, and he knows it. So. Yeah. How do you read the ending? You mean the po- the photograph ending, uh, or just what, the uh, Jack getting killed and all that? Well, I've heard one take on it that the, the mere fact that Danny kind of retraces his father's footsteps to escape him uh, can speak to. His... No, he, he retraces his own footsteps. He goes back. He he knows how to go backwards. Yeah, I mean he's a. There's time travel in the film, and Danny is aware of of how to of how to like move forwards and backwards. Well, his father doesn't move at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, just look at him; he's in bed. You know, he's sitting down. I mean, the only time he gets up to move once the narrative gets rolling is to is to kill someone. So, yeah, he's just moving towards death, and death is ultimately a lack of motion. That mm. that's his goal. <laughs> Jack's goal is to not move. He just wants peace and quiet. 